Hello. My name is Christopher Greenwood. I'm one of the judges of the International Court of Justice. And before I became a judge, I was a barrister in England and a professor of international law at the London School of Economics. In an earlier lecture, I talked about international law on the immunities which one state enjoys if it's brought before the courts of another state. That's a subject of considerable practical importance, and it's one on which, since I gave that lecture, the International Court has given a major judgment in the case between Germany and Italy in February 2012. So at some point, I want to bring that lecture up to date. But today, my subject is a, a related but separate topic, which is the immunities of the head of state, the president, the king, whoever it might be, uh, under international law, and also the immunities which international law gives to a handful of senior officials in a state, particularly the head of government or prime minister and the foreign minister of a country. Now, I have to confess that although the law on this subject goes back a long way, I really had given it very little thought until a day in October 1998 when I was telephoned by the Crown Prosecution Service in London. The Crown Prosecution Service were trying to get hold of me because a couple of weeks earlier General Augusto Pinochet, the former President of Chile, had come to England on a private visit and while he was there he was arrested on a warrant requested by a Spanish magistrate who wanted to put him on trial for crimes of torture allegedly committed in Chile during the time that Pinochet had been president, which was from 1973 until 1990. Now, Pinochet had immediately claimed that as a former president, a former head of state, he was entitled to immunity. And that had been upheld by a court in England. But the Crown Prosecution Service, which is a, a British government agency, but in cases of this kind acts in effect as the legal representative of the foreign state that is requesting extradition, had filed an appeal on behalf of the Kingdom of Spain to the House of Lords, which in those days was the final court of appeal in all these matters in England. And I was being asked whether I would be willing to appear as counsel for the Kingdom of Spain in order to argue that as a matter of international law, General Pinochet was not entitled to any immunity at all. The conversation is etched on my mind for a number of reasons. It was obviously a very interesting case to be asked to do. I should explain that in England, barristers, advocates, uh, apply what is called the cab rank principle. They don't take cases because they are politically involved on one side or the other. Barristers are meant to be like a row of taxi cabs, just waiting to pick up the first passenger that comes along. So if you're asked to take a case, you take it, whatever your political views might be. But I was also um, forced to think rather long and hard about this matter, because when I accepted with pleasure the Crown Prosecution Service's request, I then asked when the appeal was going to take place, thinking that this would be in some six or seven months' time and was told that it was going to begin the day after tomorrow. So I had 48 hours notice to prepare for what was going to be my first appearance in the House of Lords. And the result, as I say, was that I thought hard, if not perhaps very long, about the immunities which international law requires for a head of state and a former head of state because of this. And the Pinochet case is one of the cases I want to talk about in today's lecture. Let me set out exactly how I propose to deal with the matter. I want to begin by taking you through some history, because the immunity of the head of state 
is perhaps one of the oldest rules of international law. And then after the history, look at the overall structure of the law on this subject. And then in three separate sections, look first of all at the immunities that the head of state and a former head of state are entitled to, then at the position of other senior officials, and finally just say a little bit about some practical problems that can arise, because very often it's the immediate difficulty for the magistrate or the police officer on the spot who is asked to arrest somebody of considerable seniority visiting from another country. It's the difficulties that they face that I think we have to grapple with as international lawyers. So let me begin by talking about the history. I said that the immunity of a head of state or former head of state goes back a very long way. It certainly does. The cabinet in England took a long time to discuss the question of whether it could put Mary Queen of Scots, the former Queen of Scotland, on trial um, for alleged treason against the English Queen, Queen Elizabeth, after Mary Queen of Scots had been deposed and was living in England under what was in effect house arrest. And one of the reasons why they were concerned about this was precisely because Mary Queen of Scots had once been a ruling monarch. She had been the head of state of Scotland, in those days an independent kingdom. And in later cases, you find that there are traces of international law creating difficulty in the minds of those who wish to put a former president or former monarch on trial. I'm talking here about cases where a former head of state is put on trial in another country. It's obviously very different if the former head of state is brought to trial in their own country. That's a purely constitutional matter and not one which international law would normally be involved with. Now the traditional perspective of international law here was that the head of state enjoyed absolute immunity. And in fact for several hundred years the immunity of the head of state, the serving head of state, was treated as being identical with the immunity of the state itself. Louis XIV, the Sun King, is supposed to have remarked famously, l'état c'est moi, the state, it's me. And that was exactly the perspective of international law on immunity. Largely because if you wanted to bring proceedings against a foreign state in a national court, very often you would have to do so by suing the individual who was the head of state, a system which of course was quite understandable in the days when most countries were monarchies of one form or another. And the state was identified with the king, the queen, the emperor, whoever it happened to be. But gradually, the concept of the state and the individual who was the head of state became separated. And certainly by the middle of the 19th century, the two concepts are quite different. And the immunity of the state itself goes off in a different direction and as we saw in the earlier lecture, is dealt with in terms of a series of exceptions to immunity that build up over the years in relation, for example, to cases where the state is sued for a commercial activity rather than a sovereign one. But the head of state's own personal immunity remained very significant. Significant, but rarely talked about. It's suddenly in the last 20 years become much more practically significant than it has ever been in the past. And I think there are a number of reasons for that. The first is that the heads of state today are far more likely to travel to other countries than they did in the past. 
For those of you in the United States, you're probably aware that the first president of the USA to travel outside the United States during the time that he was president was Theodore Roosevelt, who was president from 1901 to the end of 1908. Now, it's quite remarkable that until that time, no American president had ever paid a state visit to any other country in the world. Monarchs in Europe were perhaps rather more travelled, but then they didn't have quite so far to go. Henry VIII famously met the King of France at the Field of the Cloth of Gold in the 1520s. But those visits tended to be enormous affairs with great panoply of state, and they very often took place, if not quite on neutral ground, on something very, very much approaching neutral ground. Today, however, the G20, the G8, the various other um, international uh, conferences, the meetings of the United Nations in September each year, these tend to mean that many heads of state will spend a large part of their lives travelling to other countries. They are therefore much more likely to bump up against the legal system of another state, whether it's because of a charge of alleged torture, as in the Pinochet case, or something much more mundane, like a traffic offence. So the immunity of the head of state has become of more practical importance, partly because heads of state travel more than they did in the past. A second reason is that nowadays there is a much greater emphasis on extraterritorial jurisdiction than at any time in the past. Most states today assert some form of jurisdiction over certain types of crime, even if those crimes are committed in the territory of other countries, by people who are not their nationals, and against victims who are not the nationals of the forum state. That was very much a central feature of the Pinochet case, for example, uh, or Belgium's prosecution of Ariel Sharon, the former Prime Minister of Israel. And a third factor that has to be taken into account is that heads of state today generally retire, or perhaps are forced to retire in some cases. The heads of state of the bygone era tended to be in, in office for life. In some cases, life might have been a rather short one, and at least one classical historian once said that the only problem a Roman emperor never had to worry about was the pension scheme, because none of them ever lived long enough to draw any kind of retirement benefit. But today, there's a large number of former heads of state who travel, who are now private citizens of one kind or another, and who are therefore likely to be brought before a court, perhaps because of what they had done during the time they were in office. So for all these reasons, the international law on the immunity of the head of state has become far more important than it used to be. Now, I'd like to begin the substance of this lecture by looking at what I think of as five key points about the structure of the law, which is worth bearing in mind before you start to look at the detail. The first is that all of these laws on immunity are a reflection of the immunity of the state. And the immunity of the state is based upon the principle that one state has no jurisdiction over another. If you want to put it in Latin, par in parem, non habet imperium. Between equals, one does not have imperium, authority, over another. Now that means that in the context of the immunity of a head of state, 
What we are talking about is the immunity which the head of one state has if he or she is brought to trial in another state. That, for example, uh, was the position with the former head of state of Chile, General Pinochet. It's the position occasionally in respect of proceedings against a serving head of state. But it applies only where the proceedings take place in a national court. If the proceedings take place before an international court or tribunal, a quite different body of law applies. You have a very early example of that at the Nuremberg trial, because one of the defendants at Nuremberg was Admiral Dönitz. And Dönitz, although he was charged primarily with offences committed when he was a Navy Admiral, was also charged in respect of the period of about two weeks when he was acting head of state of Germany after the suicide of Hitler and before the German surrender to the Allies in May 1945. So he was charged as one part of the indictment against him with offences that he was alleged to have committed while he was head of state. Now that gave the International Military Tribunal no problems whatever because they simply did not see themselves as exercising national authority. The principle of par in parem non habit imperium did not arise here because this was not a case of par in parem. Dönitz was being tried by an international tribunal. Moreover, of course, the German state was in no position to assert immunity on his behalf because the German state was now in the hands of the principal allied powers that had set up the International Military Tribunal. A rather different set of principles apply in the case of the indictment by the International Criminal Court of the current president of Sudan. Now, he is charged with a variety of offences by the ICC, and the ICC has maintained in a series of rulings that the immunity which he would have in front of a national court has no bearing in any proceedings that take place before the International Criminal Court because of the terms of the ICC statute. And they argue, as a result, that individual states are not obliged or even entitled to accord him immunity if he is to be arrested in their country for transfer to the ICC. On the ICC's view, the ICC system overrides the ordinary principles of immunity of a head of state. Now, I make no comment about that, but the critical point to notice here is that the ICC as an international court is necessarily going to be subject to a different body of rules from those which apply to limit the jurisdiction of national courts and national authorities. The second point to make is that immunity is the property of the state itself and not of the individual who happens to be the head of state or former head of state. The head of state or the former head of state enjoys immunity because the state that he serves or served insists on asserting that immunity for him. If the state chooses to waive immunity, the individual does not have the opportunity to revive it on their own account. The same principle applies, for example, with diplomats. A few years ago, a diplomat in London was charged with murder. His government waived immunity on his behalf. He nevertheless claimed before the court that because he was a diplomat, he had a personal right to immunity. The court rejected that argument and said that no, any immunity he had 
was an immunity that was derivative from the state, and it was the state that had the right to waive it. Well, you see that in the head of state context with the proceedings as civil proceedings against President Marcos of the Philippines after he left office in the 1980s. A large number of civil actions were brought against him in countries around the world, and the Philippines government made it clear that they waived any immunity that Marcos might have been entitled to. A third point to, to bear in mind in connection with the question of travel is that when a head of state visits another country, he or she is, for the duration of the visit, on the territory of that country. There's a popular misconception that so long as a head of state stays in the embassy or the ambassador's residence, he remains on his own territory. And that's not the case. The embassy of the United States in London is in British territory, not the territory of the USA. So would a hotel suite in which the President of the United States was staying if he was visiting the United Kingdom. And the same applies in relation to all visits by heads of state. Of course, it's possible for a country, if it wishes to do so, to decide that it will treat part of its territory as being the territory of a foreign state for the duration of a visit. During the Second World War, um, the British government and a number of other governments that played host to uh, deposed heads of state who had, or not so much deposed, heads of state who had had to flee because their countries had been occupied, uh, declared parts of their territory to be the territory of the country of that exiled head of state, so as to enable, for example, a child born on that territory to be treated as having been born in their own country for the purposes of rights of succession and nationality. But that's a purely voluntary matter. So a visiting head of state is on the territory of the state he's visiting, and therefore in principle comes within the jurisdiction of its courts, subject to any immunity that they might be able to invoke. A fourth point is who is a head of state for these purposes? Well, most of the time that's relatively straightforward because the country's own constitution will make it clear who is the head of state. Sometimes it can get a little complicated. Uh, a civil action brought against Prince Charles, the heir to the British throne, in an American court in the 1980s, uh, involved the State Department having to make a, a formal statement to the court that although Prince Charles was not head of state, he was merely the heir, he was nevertheless in the United States on an official visit representing the United Kingdom and therefore had to be accorded immunities uh, that befitted that position. But neither Prince Charles nor any other member of a royal family except the reigning monarch is themselves entitled to head of state immunity. Nor is somebody who is the head of a territory within a state, a constituent part of a federation, a head of state for these purposes. In the last few years, the British courts, for example, have decided that the governor of one of the states of the Federation of Nigeria was not entitled to head of state immunity because it was Nigeria that was the state, and its president who was the head of state, not the governor of one of the units within Nigeria. Similarly, His Highness the Sultan of Pahang, one of the states that makes up Malaysia, and an unusual federation, because the units within the federation are themselves monarchies with their own royal families. The Court of Appeal in England held that the Sultan of Pahang was not entitled to head of state immunity for the purposes of exemption from UK immigration laws. 
Now that doesn't mean, of course, that the governor of a Nigerian state or the Sultan of Pahang might not have some form of immunity, but they wouldn't enjoy the special immunity regime which is accorded to a head of state. And lastly, it's important always to keep a clear distinction between immunity as a matter of international law and the immunity which a head of state will have in their own country, which is a matter of domestic constitutional law. Now, the constitutional law immunity of the head of state before the courts of his or her own country may be more or less extensive than international law accords. In some states, a former president is accorded absolute immunity for life. In others, even a serving president can be brought before the courts during their term of office. But that has nothing to do with international law. That's a domestic constitutional choice of that country. What we're interested in here is what are the immunities that the head of state has when he or she is brought before a court in another country during their term of office or afterwards. Now with those thoughts about the structure of immunity, let's turn and have a look at the immunity of a serving head of state first. Now this is often referred to as immunity ratione personae, an immunity which exists because of who you are, rather than what you're doing. Now, that means that it's an immunity which is in principle absolute. You cannot sue an incumbent head of state, not only in respect of official acts, you can't sue them in respect of their private activities either. Now, the logic of that is in part that the head of state should not have an immunity that is less than the immunity accorded to an ambassador. After all, the ambassador represents the head of state in a foreign country. And under international law on diplomatic relations, the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations of 1961, an ambassador has, with one or two minor exceptions, an absolute immunity from the jurisdiction of the courts of the country to which he or she is accredited. And the assumption is that the head of state would be in a similar position. And therefore it would make no difference whether the head of state was present in the country in question because they were on an official visit or a purely private visit of some kind, maybe just a piece of tourism. But there are still important differences between the position of ambassadors and the position of a head of state. An ambassador has immunity under international law only in the, before the courts of the country to which they are accredited. So the German ambassador to France has immunity from the jurisdiction of the French courts, but not from the jurisdiction of the courts of Italy or Belgium or Luxembourg, unless the matter relates to something that has happened while the ambassador is passing through that third state on their way to the country to which they're accredited or back to their home state. So the immunity of the ambassador is geographically limited. The immunity of the head of state, by definition, is not. A head of state is not accredited to anywhere. It's true that they may visit another country, and therefore their immunities may be particularly important to them while they're visiting that country. But it's also possible they may be the subject of extraterritorial proceedings brought against them while they are at home, but in the courts of another state. For example, an action against the President of France brought in a court in, let us say, Japan, in relation to something that had happened in France 
during the President's term of office. So the, um, the M immunities which the head of state enjoys are in practice broader in geographical scope than the immunities of the ambassador. And as I say, the general assumption is that these immunities are absolute. Although the International Court of Justice has not had to consider this in relation to a head of state, they have considered it in relation to a foreign minister in a case called the arrest warrant between the Democratic Republic of Congo and Belgium, which was decided in 2002. A Belgian court had laid charges against the person who at the time was foreign minister of the Democratic Republic of Congo in relation to allegations of a wide range of violations of international law, some serious crimes, crimes against humanity, crimes of torture, war crimes, allegedly committed by this foreign minister, for the most part during the period immediately before he became foreign minister. By quite a substantial majority, the International Court of Justice decided that the immunity of the foreign minister was in this respect similar to the immunity of a head of state. During the time that the foreign minister was in office, the immunity was absolute. But they did stress that it was absolute immunity in respect of proceedings in the courts of another state and nothing to do with the position in an international court or tribunal. And in addition, that that immunity did not protect the foreign minister from being brought to trial in the country in which he was an official. So it was perfectly possible for the DRC to prosecute this man. It was simply a violation of international law for Belgium to do so. Now that's the position of a serving head of state and that's relatively straightforward. Ex-heads of state tend to be a bit more complicated. An ex-head of state no longer has any kind of immunity ratione personae. They don't enjoy immunity simply because of who they are. The immunity is an immunity ratione materiae. It's an immunity on account of the subject of the proceedings. And it can be summed up in these terms. A former head of state is entitled to immunity from the jurisdiction of other countries only in respect of acts which took place during their time as head of state and which were of an official character. An interesting example of that is a case brought in a French court in the 1950s against the former King Farouk of Egypt. After King Farouk was deposed and went to live in France in exile, he was sued by Christian Dior, the fashion house, because he had allegedly ordered dresses for his wife, Queen Farida, while he had been king, and he hadn't paid for them. And the French court held that purchasing dresses for your wife is not an official activity, it's a purely private matter. King Farouk is believed to have expressed quite strong disagreement with that. Uh, but it's a purely private act on the part of the head of state. And therefore, once they have left office, they are in, no they're in a position no different from that of any other private citizen if they're sued. But of course, King Farouk would have been entitled to immunity during the time that he had been monarch of Egypt. Now, it was that, against that background that we had to discuss the liability of General Pinochet in the English courts in 1998 to 99. General Pinochet was charged with crimes of torture, which he was supposed to have authorized or ordered during the period he was president. Now, those are acts which clearly do not fall into the, into the category of purchasing dresses from Christian Dior. They're not obviously private acts of that kind. It was argued 
that they were acts which were nevertheless not official acts because they were unlawful, manifestly unlawful under international law. But the court, although it went some way towards accepting or at least showing an interest in that argument, did not base its judgment on that point. Rather, what it decided was that in relation to the crime of torture, there could not coexist the prohibition of torture in international law and the criminal liability for that offence, and at the same time, a regime of immunity. Now, that ruling has often been misunderstood. It's actually rather narrower than many people imagine it to be. First of all, it's important to look at the particular crime that was under consideration. The Convention Against Torture, adopted by the United Nations in 1984, to which Britain, Chile and Spain had all become parties in the late 1980s, so it was in force for all three countries by the time the Pinochet case went to the English courts in 1998, defines torture as a certain category of acts committed by an official or under the orders of an official, or at least by somebody who is apparently acting with official authority. In other words, you can't commit the offence of torture under the Convention if you are a purely private citizen acting in a private capacity, uh, a gangster, for example, torturing a member of a rival gang or a member of the public. So the definition of the offence presupposed an official character to the action. At the same time, the law of immunity ratione materiae for an ex-head of state presupposes that immunity exists only in respect of official acts. And what seems to me to have persuaded the House of Lords was that you couldn't on the one hand have international law saying any official is liable to prosecution in any country in respect of an act of torture, defined as an act of an official character, and at the same time have a regime of international law that said, however, because of the official character of the act, the individual may be entitled to immunity. That would be a contradiction in terms. But it's really only in respect of torture that that contradiction is so starkly apparent. Now it's true, you could argue very plausibly that the same principle should apply, for example, to war crimes, which although they can be committed by people who are acting purely privately, very seldom are. And it may be that there are other offences that also fall into this category. But it's important not to overstate how far the Pinochet case takes us in that respect. It was a very important, a groundbreaking judgment. It was the first time that a former head of state had been put on trial in the courts of another country in respect of crimes of this kind since Dönitz was tried in the International Tribunal after the war and Mary Queen of Scots 300 years before that in a court in England, 350 years before that. I can remember the clerk in my chambers who organised my practice as a barrister saying to me after the Pinochet case that perhaps I should try specialising in cases about former heads of state. And I said that since there have been only two in England, Mary Queen of Scots in the 1580s and General Pinochet in the 1990s, it was perhaps a little too specialised an area for me to make a living out of. 
Today there'd perhaps be rather more work than we thought at the time. That's the first limitation on Pinochet. The second limitation is that it was a case about criminal liability. Now one of the key principles in the Nuremberg trial is that the criminal liability of an individual under international law is separate from the civil liability or responsibility, I should say, of the state. The responsibility of the state does not uh, remove the criminal liability of the individual. They are two separate and distinct legal regimes. But if the individual official is sued for damages, the position may be different because there a civil action against the individual ex-head of state or other senior official is arguably an action against the state itself because the individual claimant is only going to obtain compensation once. And in most legal systems, if the official has acted in an official capacity, then the state will be vicariously liable for their actions. And it's interesting that eight years after Pinochet, in a case called Jones and Saudi Arabia, the House of Lords, including at least one judge who had sat in the Pinochet appeal as well, ruled unanimously that individual officials, when they were sued for torture, had the same immunity that the state itself would have. In other words, they drew a clear distinction between immunity in civil actions and immunity in criminal actions. Now, I would stress once again that the position in international tribunals is different. The Special Court for Sierra Leone proceeded to try and convict Charles Taylor, the former president of Liberia, and ruled in doing so that the immunities which Charles Taylor might have been entitled to before a national court were completely inapplicable before the International Special Court for Sierra Leone. In Taylor's case, there's the additional factor that the Liberian government was not asserting immunity on his behalf. Slobodan Milosevic was tried, although he died before the case was concluded, was tried before the International Criminal Tribunal for Yugoslavia for acts that he was supposed to have carried out while he was president of Serbia, or the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, as it had once been known. So it's always important to keep an eye on which cases are really cases of international tribunals, and which cases really turn on the fact that immunity was waived. Pinochet is neither. Pinochet is a case where the former president of Chile was brought before the English courts on a request for extradition to Spain, and Chile appeared separately from Pinochet's legal team in the House of Lords to assert that he was entitled to immunity. Nevertheless, the House of Lords decided by a substantial majority that he was not entitled to immunity, although when the case was heard for the second time, the first judgment having to be set aside for reasons we needn't now go into, the House of Lords held that the removal of immunity applied only to offences committed after the date on which the Treaty Convention Against Torture had entered into force for the three countries concerned. So it only applied to offences of torture committed after 1988, which is a fairly small slice of the charges raised against General Pinochet. Let me turn from the ex-head of state to say a little bit about one or two other officials. The general assumption is that a head of government and a foreign minister benefit from essentially the same immunities 
as the head of state, that the difference generally being that they wouldn't be able to assert the same level of immunity for members of their immediate family that uh, a monarch, for example, would be entitled to. Of course, the relationship between the head of state and head of government varies a lot from one country to another. In some countries, the president uh, as head of state is effectively the head of government as well. The United States would be an example of that. In others, the head of government may be the, the prime minister, may be the person who actually takes the political decisions, and the head of state has a largely ceremonial function. But nevertheless, it's usually quite easy to identify who is the head of government and who is the foreign minister. At least so you would think. The trouble is that different countries divide up the jobs in very different ways. Um, another case that I can remember from the English courts involved the Minister for Overseas Trade of another state who was visiting the United Kingdom as part of the team accompanying his president on a state visit. And the question arose of whether the Minister of Overseas Trade was entitled to the immunity of a foreign minister. He wasn't, after all, the foreign minister. Somebody else held that post. But the English court decided that in many countries, Overseas trade is a responsibility of the foreign minister. It's therefore, in effect, a subordinate branch of the foreign ministry. And the minister of overseas trade was therefore entitled to the same immunity which a foreign minister would be entitled to. But what about a national security advisor? Henry Kissinger, as national security advisor in the United States, was at one stage arguably the most influential person in foreign relations anywhere in the world. But it's a role that has no counterpart in many countries. It doesn't have the traditional dignities that the foreign minister has. What would be the position of a national security advisor under this regime of immunities for a foreign minister? We don't know. The matter has simply never been decided. Similarly, what about the situation where in one country this particular role would be fulfilled by a political appointment, somebody who had ministerial rank, but in another country, the job would be done by a permanent official, a civil servant. Does the fact that in state A, it's a minister, mean that that person is entitled to immunity, but in state B, the fact that the person concerned is a civil servant, mean that no immunity ratione personae should apply? Of course, there is, to some extent, an answer to this question in the sense that immunity ratione materiae, the more limited immunity for official acts only, would apply to both categories of people. But what about the broader immunity ratione personae? That, I think, remains a question that international law still has to work out. And lastly, I said I'd talk a little bit about one or two of the practical difficulties that can arise. I think perhaps the biggest practical difficulty is that these cases tend to be ones that has, have to be dealt with in a very short period of time. The Pinochet case is a good example. A fairly junior official had to decide whether or not to issue an arrest warrant in the course of a weekend, with very limited access to any kind of advice about international law on this subject. And of course, had you looked at the international law textbooks of 1998, most of them didn't deal with the immunities of a head of state or former head of state at all. It was a subject that had barely been discussed. So the pressure of time is an enormously significant factor. A second practical difficulty is that quite often 
these cases arise in a context where there is, on the face of it, a conflict between two different duties that the state may be under. There may be the duty on the one hand to accord immunity, if the person concerned is entitled to it, and on the other, the duty to prosecute crimes that are prohibited by one of the international conventions, like the Torture Convention. And therefore there's the need to reconcile those two, whereas most discussions about immunity until about 30 years ago had taken place in a context where the state that was seeking to assert jurisdiction might have a right to do that, but certainly it was never suggested they had a duty to do so. So there wasn't that same issue of two duties operating in the same field. And that again, I think, has created a considerable amount of difficulty. Lastly, there's the problem that many heads of state today have quite extensive private activities as well as public law functions. So it may well be, for example, that there's a considerable body of commercial activity or apparently commercial activity being conducted by a head of state as well as the sovereign activities that they're involved in. And that again can give rise to very considerable difficulties about exactly where you draw the line. So is the subject just too difficult for people to apply in practice? I don't think it is. If you look at the years since Pinochet, they have seen the first trials of former heads of state for a very long time. But on the other hand, they haven't involved a visiting head of state or foreign minister being arrested while they're visiting the G20 conference or while they're at a meeting of foreign ministers somewhere. In practice, diplomacy has managed to continue, notwithstanding the changes in practice which the Pinochet case led to. I think the key is to keep a clear head about what the different legal regimes actually require, to keep in mind the difference, for example, between immunity before a national court and immunity before an international tribunal, between the immunity ratione personae of the serving head of state, which is absolute, and the immunity ratione materiae of a former head of state, which will be much more restricted. And to see where the main areas of difficulty lie, such as, for example, the question of to what extent immunity for official acts can be said to apply to something like torture. Pinochet case, of course, is a powerful indicator that it doesn't, but it's not one that has gone uncriticised. So that, I think, is the area that needs to be looked at.